Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of Philippians? Philippians 4. I uh, have a sort of perverse mind. I would like to ask, I'm not going to, but I would like to ask, how many of you are mad at the person sitting right next to you right now? No show of hands, that's not essential. I can tell by the looks on your faces that uh, some of you uh, came here out of uh, a time of conflict. That's all right. Conflict is uh, is an, an almost inevitable portion in our life. Ray Stedman used to quote a little poem that goes, uh, To live above with saints we love, that will be endless glory. To live below with those we know, that's another story. <laughs> and I'm sure that you find that true from time to time. I uh, suppose... It would be just as shocking today as it was in Paul's day to have the reader or teacher of the morning stand up on Sunday morning in the church and say, I, uh, I beseech Sam and Sue to get along, to settle your differences, to stop your fighting. Uh, if, if anybody named Sam and Sue are here that are in conflict, I apologize. Those names are chosen at random. But uh, if you were to hear your name, spoken out loud, and you heard a call from up front to settle your differences, it would certainly get your attention, and the attention of the people around you, and it would certainly indicate something of the seriousness of, uh, of unresolved conflict within the body of Christ. Now, that's exactly what happened in Philippi almost 1,900 years ago. The letter arrived from the Apostle Paul, and as the custom was in those days, the letter was read in, in church. They didn't have printing presses and mimeograph machines and uh, and, and therefore, these texts were read. The reader, the elder, whoever it was that read the, the, the epistle from the apostle would uh, unroll the scroll or a little piece of papyrus, and he would start to read. And he would come to this portion of the book of, of Philippians, and he would read out loud, I plead with Yodia, who happened to be a woman in the church in Philippi, and I plead with Syntyche, <coughs> pardon me, to agree with each other, in the Lord. In other words, get along. Come on, you two women. Let's uh, stop this fighting and squabbling and, and let's, let's make up and get along. Now, I've already mentioned these two women before. They were two very prominent women. These were not uh, two spiteful ladies. They were prominent leaders in, in the church. They're associated with Paul, described as his uh, teammates here in the passage. The, pass the, the word that's translated contended at my side basically means teammates. And they're also associated with Clement, who has come down to us uh, uh, in history as a well-known church leader. This is probably the Clement who is known as Clement of Rome, who was the first bishop of the city of Rome. So these were two very influential men, an apostle and a potential bishop who were associated with these two women in ministry. These were women involved in the leadership of the church. This church, as a matter of fact, is noted for the fact that women from the very beginning played a very important role in the church. The church was founded by women. The Apostle Paul went down to a place of prayer along the, the river where he found a group of women praying, and that was how the church began. The first convert was a woman named Lydia, who was a businesswoman. She, was, she dealt in... Uh, purple fabric, apparently very wealthy, had a large home, he invited them into her home, and the church met uh, at first in, in that home. 
So women had played an important part in the church. And here these two women had been very, very influential in leadership, but they had gotten out of sorts with each other. And the church was forming sides. They were taking sides, forming parties, and there was a danger of the church being split. And as I've said before, the whole book of Philippians, I believe, was written for the sake of these two women. Now, several observations I want to make about this section. The first is that Paul does not command these women to get it together because you cannot command someone to get along. It's like this inane thing we say to our kids. <clears throat> Come on, children, get along. You know, get along. Stop fussing. You know, that's a little bit silly because you can't tell a person to get along and expect them to comply. It just doesn't work that way. Those of you that are parents know what I'm talking about. And so Paul, uh, Paul does not... Uh, he doesn't use his apostolic authority. He says, please, please, Yodia, Syntyche, get along. This is very, it's very important that you resolve your conflict, settle your, your differences. The second thing that I'd like to uh, have you note about this passage is that he calls for help, a third party, in verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, whoever that may be, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, my mates, whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who this yoke fellow was. There are several guesses. It could be Epaphroditus, who uh, carried the letter to Philippi. The Roman Empire had a postal service, much like our Pony Express, but... Uh, more often than not, letters were carried by travelers. Epaphroditus was on his way to, Philipp to Philippi, and so Paul sent the letter with, uh, with this uh, young Christian. So it may be Epaphroditus. This is an aside to Epaphroditus, as Paul is writing or as he's, uh, as he's dictating this letter to uh, Epaphroditus. We don't know. For myself, I think the word that's translated yoke fellow here is really a proper name. In Greek, uh, the word is syzygy. And I think it's a name, like Yodi and Syntyche and Syzygy. Syzygy, uh, the word means someone who works well in a yoke, uh, someone who, who works well in a harness is the idea. Uh, I, I go way back. I can, I can remember my father plowing with horses, if you can believe that, uh, before we had a tractor. And uh, there were certain horses that pulled together well, and there were some horses that didn't. They'd work well singly in harness, but you get two horses together and they'd bite and kick and <clears throat> just couldn't kick up a terrible ruckus and could, couldn't work with them. But there were certain horses that worked well in harness and that's the word that a Greek, the Greeks would use this word to refer to an animal like that. They'd say that's a syzygy. He, he works well in harness. Now that came to be a proper name. They found that name in inscriptions in the ancient world. And I, uh, the reason Paul refers to this individual as true syzygy is he's saying this person's they're well-named. This, this is someone who has learned how to deal with people. This is someone who has been able to work out relationships, who understands the principles that bring people together rather than fragment relationships. Now, sometimes you need someone like that to resolve a conflict. Some conflicts are so deep. Excuse me. Oh, thank you. I'm the only windmill you ever saw that ran on water. Some, some conflicts are so deep that they cannot be resolved uh, by the two people in conflict. You need, you need someone from the outside, an objective third party. 
Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 6. Why, he says, do you take your, your disputes before non-Christian law courts to settle them? Why not find a Christian brother or sister who can, who can help you resolve this conflict? Someone who's wise, someone who understands how to work through these uh, difficulties. Uh, I think men have a hard time recognizing that sometimes they need a third party to help them resolve their marital conflicts. They think it's a sign of weakness. But asking for help is never a sign for, of weakness. It's a sign of strength. When you're willing to admit that you need help, that's a very manly thing to do. And uh, if you're involved in, in a, you're locked into a marital conflict you find very difficult to resolve, you may well need a third party to come in and help you sort out the pieces. That's all right. It's all right. You can do that. Paul advocates that sort of thing here. He says, uh, I ask you, uh, well-named yoke fellow, help these women. Help them resolve their, uh, their differences. Now, uh, what follows uh, is what appears to be a series of, of disconnected, unjointed commands. I have a feeling, however, <clears throat> that Paul is still working on the same theme, that of conflict. And he's gathering up a number of ideas that he's touched upon in the book. Uh, ideas that are helpful in resolving conflict. Things to bring to mind when you're in, uh, in discord. Uh, things to call to your mind when you're out of phase with someone else. Can't work your relationship out. Uh, and these things, I think, are helpful. This is, this is good counsel. And the first is in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Mm, I like that. Hear it. Let's hear this again. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. Now, he's already said this, uh, this before. But he, he's going to say it again and again and again because this is really the, the key to almost everything else in the Christian life. The first thing is to center on the Lord, to find your satisfaction from him instead of trying to find your satisfaction in some other person or in some other relationship. The, the, the problem with so many relationships is that we are really dependent upon the individual that, that, that we're in relationship with for our happiness. And if they don't approve of us, they don't like us, then we, we don't feel good about ourselves. We get our sense of worth, our identity our ego satisfaction out of the love and acceptance of someone else. And when they reject us, then we are devastated. And that just exacerbates the conflict. I think that's why Paul says the place to begin always is by centering on the Lord. Don't center on anything else. Don't try to find your satisfaction from any other source. Remember I said the key phrase is in the Lord. Find your satisfaction in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Center on him, not on something else. I remember a Doonesbury cartoon I saw a few years ago. I had to chuckle when I saw it because it was very, very insightful. Uh, Michael J. Doonesbury is sitting in front of the television set, and the, the programming comes to an end, and there's loud gunfighting and a lot of violence. And then the, the announcer comes on, and he says, This ends our day of programming. Stay tuned for the national anthem. Film clips of the Marines on Iwo Jima and a short story from the life of Jesus. And I thought, that's a mosaic of, of life, if there ever was one. You know, that's the, that's the kind of fragmented uh, lives that we live. Jesus along, er, alongside everything else. Now, what Paul is saying is, don't center on anything else except the Lord. 
that's where your satisfaction is is going to uh, is going to come from. Uh, a number of years ago, I was following a lady down Northview in a white uh, Porsche 928. It was a thing of beauty. Uh, hadn't even been registered yet. Didn't have the tags on it. And uh, she she was going to turn a lap. She stopped and was waiting for a line of traffic to clear coming toward her. And I pulled up behind her and <clears throat> was waiting for her to make her turn. And I happened to glance up in my rearview mirror and I saw this yellow truck bearing down on me. And I, I realized that the man in the truck didn't see me. He was looking at a garage sale or something over to his right. And he hit me going about 25 or 30 miles an hour and drove my car right into the back of her Porsche. And it just demolished it. I mean, that Porsche was about four feet shorter than it was <clears throat> 10 seconds before. And she got out of the car, and she was wringing her hands. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes, but I'm not going to be okay. She said, my husband is going to kill me. Now, I, I looked at the paper the next day, and there, no murders were reported. So <laughs> I'm sure he took it a little better than that. But I could understand her feeling. And see, that's the way we are. We, we, and if we're really thinking that somebody else is going to get us, it is devastating. And it, it just uh, it causes our, our conflict to, uh, uh, to increase. The, the, the first thing, Paul says, when you're locked into one of these struggles is to remember where your security comes from, where your sense of worth comes from. It does not come from that person, no matter what they do. Even if you smashed your husband's Porsche, your security is in, is in the Lord. See? You can be stable. Your sense of worth comes from the, the fact that you're greatly loved. We, we uh, got a lot of laughs out of Dave Tilstrom at the family conference last week about his legs. Uh, that was the all-time funny thing. Uh, those of you that, that were there know that he kept poking funny at his, uh, fun at his skinny white legs and saying that uh, you know, he just hated to uh, wear short pants because everybody laughed at his legs and he had learned to get his security from the Lord. Uh, I, he uh, was ordained or is going to be ordained by our elders and I was giving him a hard time the day he, he left. And I said, when you come back, I said, I want you to uh, be prepared to answer a question that I'm going to ask you when you're ordained. I said, I want you to give a clear, concise exposition of Psalm 147.10. And I didn't tell him what it was. And uh, he went home and read 100, uh, Psalm 147.10. And then I saw him Monday, I guess it was. And he, when he saw me, he laughed out loud. Because Psalm 147.10 says... The Lord does not take delight in horses, nor, nor does the Lord take delight in a man's legs. <clears throat> but the Lord takes delight in those that fear him. And you see, that's the place that we've got to come to. We've got to realize that even if nobody else takes delight in us, the Lord delights in those that love him. There's a wonderful expression of that truth in, in verse 3. He, he describes these uh, two women, uh, Yodi and Syntyche and, and Clement and others who have contended by Paul's side, whose names are written in the book of life. Do you realize what that means? That's a figure from the Old Testament. Uh, there, there is a symbolic roster of the covenant people that are kept, the people that know God. Uh, as Malachi puts it, those that feared the Lord, thought often, uh, talked often one to another, that is, about the Lord. And the Lord heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those that feared the Lord and thought on his name. 
Now, that's a symbol. God doesn't really have a book up there with everybody's names in it. He doesn't have to have a book to remember. But uh, that's a concession to, to us. What God wants you to know is that he knows your name. He knows your name. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament, when God speaks to someone, he doesn't say, hey, you. He says, Samuel, Samuel, Abraham, Abraham. God knows your name. So even if you're in a group where no one knows you, even if your husband has forgotten you, even if nobody seems to be paying any attention to you, I want you to understand that your names are written on God's heart. He knows your name. He loves you. He accepts you just as you are, warts and all. He loves you just as you are. Uh, one of my favorite passages, one that I often share with pastors, because the tendency of people in ministry is to get their sense of worth from their ministry. And let me tell you, that doesn't work. Because, you know, there are, there are the good days and then there are the very bad days when you get criticized and people don't understand. I mean, that's the name of the game. So if you're getting your sense of worth from your ministry, you, you know, it's, it's this kind of thing. You're up and down. Well, the, the, the disciples came back from a junket. The Lord had sent them out to do some healing. And they cast out some demons and they, they came back and they were telling their war stories. And Jesus listened to them for a while and he said, gentlemen, don't Rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See? In other words, don't get your sense of worth from what you do. Get your worth from who you are. You're a greatly loved son of God, and your name is written in heaven. Now, you remember that. And I say this to myself, too. Next time you're locked in conflict with someone because they don't appreciate you, they don't love you as you ought to be loved, they don't understand you, they don't accept you, they don't take you seriously. Remember, your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Now, the second thing Paul says is, um, verse 5, another command. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Uh, gentleness is uh, forbearance. Uh, that's, in fact, that word is used to translate the term in the NASB, forbearance person who forbears rolls with the punches. Doesn't get upset easily. It's easy to live with, he or she is. They don't get rattled easily. They don't react. They're not defensive. They're not touchy. They take all kinds of hard shots and they're, they're relaxed about, about the whole thing. Uh, it's what the New Testament calls meekness. Meekness is not mildness. Meekness is strength under control. It's the ability to accept wrongs without retaliation. Justin Martyr said that the greatest miracle that Jesus performed was the fact that he did not retaliate uh, in the face of injustice. Now, that, that, that takes grace to just not react, not get upset and angry when someone, someone attacks you. Uh, and the only way you can do that, as Paul puts it, is because the Lord is at hand. Uh, some uh, interpreters apply that statement to the second coming. The Lord is at the door in the sense that he's about to come. But I, I really think that he's talking about uh, the presence of the Lord. The Lord is here. He's present. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to be defensive. 
You can explain yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. If someone uh, accuses you of, of some action, you can, you can tell them why you did it. That's all right. Explanations are in order, but not defensiveness. We don't have to protect ourselves. Why? Because God is going to protect us. He, he, is, he does a far better job of it than we can do. He's going to take care of us. And when we get defensive, really, we're, you know, we tie his hands. He can't protect us when we're out there trying to protect ourselves. It's a wonderful story about Moses. I think I've used it before here, but at the risk of just being repetitious, so I want to say it again. Uh, Moses is described in, in uh, the Pentateuch as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, Moses was not, he was not a weak man. Moses was a hardened, tough, very strong leader, as you know. But he's described as meek. He was non-defensive. <clears throat> there was a time in Moses' life when he was under attack from his family. His sister, Miriam, his brother, Aaron, uh, attacked his leadership. You know, who do you think you are? Who, who, you know, why, why, why are you leading this uh, band? As a matter of fact, God had told him to. Moses didn't want to. He was pressed in the service. He was simply an obedient man. Uh, we know from the text that the real problem was not that they felt his, his leadership was inadequate, but that, that Aaron and Miriam were racists. It just, the text puts it that way. They were angry because he had married a Cushite woman. He'd married a black woman. And that was what was underneath all of this, uh, this uneasiness about his leadership. So they assaulted him. And Moses knew what was going on. He understood why they felt that way. But he didn't defend himself. He explained, but he didn't defend himself. He had a little tent. It was called the Tent of Meeting. That's before they had the tabernacle. And he went back to his Tent of Meeting. And he went in there. And it was called the Tent of Meeting because that's where he met with God. And he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, you take care of this situation. I can't. And the Lord did. Miriam temporarily contracted leprosy. She was, she was delivered. She was healed. But God judged her. Moses didn't have to. Now, God isn't going to strike down all your enemies with Hansen's disease and leprosy or something. You know, that's not the point. It's just that Moses was meek. That's the point the text was trying to make. He didn't protect himself. He let God protect him. That's what Paul means when he says, let your gentleness, your yielding spirit, your meekness, be evident to all. Why? The Lord is near. And he can do, he can do a lot better job of protecting you than, than you can. Uh, the third command is in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. You understand what he's saying? Don't be a worry wart. Don't worry about anything. Don't be preoccupied with your problems. Don't center on the problem and worry about it. Doesn't do any good. Someone said worry is like a rocking chair. You know, it gives you something to do, but it doesn't do any good. And furthermore, worry separates you from God. Do you understand that? If I understand the parable of the seeds and the sower, that's exactly the point. The cares of this world. And it's the same word, the same root that's used here for, for anxiety. The cares of this world make the word unfruitful. We center on the problem. We worry about it. And we don't take into account God's ability. And it separates us from him. It draws us away from, from contact with, uh, with him. So Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, 
by prayer and petition. In other words, we ask God, and then we ask God for something with thanksgiving, and we thank him for it in advance, whatever it is that he sends. Present your request to God. Now, he doesn't say that he'll always uh, deal with the person that is causing the problem in your life. But what he will do is give you a sense of peace. And the peace, the serenity of God, which transcends all understanding, that is, it's uh, above and beyond uh, anything that we can produce naturally. It's beyond anything that comes out of our mind or any thoughts. You know, our, our, you know when we have a situation that we're troubled about, we, we scheme and connive and try to work it out. And sometimes we get it worked out and, and we have a sense of peace momentarily because we found the solution to the problem, we think. But, but Paul is saying, even if you don't know the solution at this point, there is a transcendent peace, an inexplicable peace, that comes when you just put the thing in God's hands. That's called relinquishment. It, you know, it's taking the problem and putting it into God's hands and letting him work it out, whatever, whatever that may mean. Peter puts it another way. Casting all your care upon him. Same word for care. Casting all your anxiety upon him. Roll the weight of your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares about you. I used to watch the Mickey Mouse Club with my kids, and we'd sit in front of the television set, you know, and the Mouseketeers would come out at the end of the program, and they would sing, M-I-C, see you real soon, K-E-Y, why? Because we like you, they would say. And these little kids living, you know, in some ghetto where nobody gave them the time of day. We'd just sit up straighter because the Mouseketeers liked them. So I like Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers likes me, I can tell. But I, I want to tell you, somebody else likes you a whole lot more. He knows your name. He cares about you. That's God. He cares. There's this tremendous sense of peace that comes from knowing that God knows what to do. And we may not have a clue. We may not have the slightest idea what to do. But God knows. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds, keep you stable and secure even though everything's falling falling apart around you. Uh, I told this story before, but I, I can't, uh, can't resist telling it again. My, my nephew one day was walking across a field with my uh, brother-in-law, Ed Wickard. He was just a little guy then, and, and he was carrying a bunch of big rocks. Big, he found a bunch of stream boulders, and he was about a half a dozen of them. He's carrying these things, struggling along. And, Ed says, uh, David, why don't you put your rocks down? I mean, the little kid was perspiring. He said, no, these are my piggies. I don't know how you got that name. These are my piggies, he said. And Ed says, well, uh, okay, David, why don't you let me carry your piggies? And David thought about that for a moment, and he said, no. He said, you carry me, and I'll carry the piggies. <laughs> and isn't that what we do? Lord... You know, I'm trusting you for my eternal destiny, but I've got to carry the piggies. And, and we try to lift the weight of all of this anxiety, all of this worry, the fear, the doubt, the discouragement. And, and all the Lord wants us to do is just relinquish it. Just take our hands off of it. Casting all your care upon him. Why? Because he likes you. Because he cares about you. See? All right, that's the third thing. Present your requests to God. Verse 8. <clears throat> Finally, brothers, 
Here goes Paul the preacher again, saying finally for the third time. <clears throat> Actually, the second time. <coughs> Pardon me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, uh, it's a wonderful word, that word excellent is really the word for manly in, in uh, Greek literature. If anything is manly or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I say, what is this? The power of positive thinking. What do we do? Go in, off in the corner and just think pure thoughts? Now, how do you think an excellent thought? I mean, can you just produce an excellent thought in your mind? It will. Now, you see, Paul is doing what, what the, the Greek writers of this era did over and over again. He's using all of these terms as synonyms for truth. The philosophers, the Platonic philosophers, would, would use lists of things like this to call people to think about the good and the beautiful and the true things, the pure things, the ideals, the Platonic ideals. And Paul just borrowed that, that way of speaking from them. And he's saying, think about the truth. And this is the truth, you see. Think about what God has said. That's what he's saying. Ponder the truths that God has revealed in the Word. Now, that's a good thing to do. See, when, when your relationship with your, with your spouse is uh, in trouble, when your relationship with your children is trouble, when you're having difficulties with your employer or your employees or your next-door neighbor or whatever it might be, is to think through the truth. What is true? Well, we've already talked about some of the things that are true. One is that, that the, Lord, the Lord cares. He cares. See? We're, we're greatly loved of God. Maybe you have a real problem loving yourself. You don't like yourself well. You had a cold, distant father who never thought to approve of you or express appreciation for things that you did, and so you just grew up, grew up thinking that you don't have any worth or value. And a person like that is often not only threatened, but they're also very threatening. Threatened people are very threatening. They tend to be defensive and sensitive and and they have a hair-trigger temper. And, you know, they're, they're protective, self, self-protective. And very often it comes out of the fact that you know, we just don't feel worthwhile or, or valuable. Well, what's the truth? When someone, you know, when your husband says, where'd you get this meat? You know, at the dinner table. And he's just asking a question, you know, where'd you get this meat? And you start thinking, you don't like my cooking. And, you know, you're right on the verge of, a, of World War III, just over a piece of meat. Well, see, well just remind yourself that, that your self-worth does not grow out of the fact that you're a good cook. Because I don't care how good a cook you are, you're going to blow a few from time to time. That's all right, but that's permitted. See? Our self-worth does not grow out of what we do. It grows out of what we are. We're greatly loved children of God. Now, that's an important thing to remember. See, that's a truth that your mind can dwell on when you begin to feel insecure. Uh, or maybe you feel inadequate. You're given a job that's way beyond your capabilities. And all of us have things like that from time to time we have to do. And you start dwelling on how inadequate you are to do the job. Well, what, what, what should you do at a time like that? Think about the truth. See, don't, don't focus on your inadequacy. 
Because the more you focus on your inadequacy, the more inadequate you become. And then you, get, you become filled with self-pity, and self-pity always makes you depressed, and it's just one of those endless cycles. You just go down and down and down. Don't focus on your inadequacy. Remind yourself of the truth. What's true? Not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has qualified us to be ministers of the new covenant. Is that true or not? That's true. So, uh, so what? Yeah, you are inadequate. So am I. Deeply inadequate. But our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but from God. That's a truth, see, that your mind can go back to. Instead of playing the old tapes, oh, I can't do anything right. You go back to the fact that you are adequate in Christ to do whatever God calls you to, to do. Or perhaps some injustice is done and you're being badly treated. And that's another sure, you know, that'll always lead to self-pity. Invariably. Someone does you dirt. Well, uh, what's the truth? Peter says in 1 Peter 3, what glory is it? If you're buffeted for your faults and take it patiently. You know, you're late to work every day for a week and your employer chews you out. You deserve it. What glory is that? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is approved by God. This is acceptable to him. He delights in that. Why? Because even Christ suffered for us, the just, for the unjust, that he might lead us to God. The greatest thing that ever happened to the human race happened through injustice. Do you understand that? The most unjust act that ever occurred in history was the cross. And it was through that injustice that God saved the world. So so what? That you're pounded and buffeted and battered and misunderstood. and Somebody calls you dirty names and, and you're just trying to do what's right. That's all right. That's okay. They treated the Lord the same way. And the highest good came out of it. See? You've been called to that. Don't be surprised, Peter says, that the fiery trial is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice in as much as you're a partaker of Christ's suffering. That's truth. And you can fix your mind on the truth and it'll keep you stable in the midst of, a, of an unjust situation. The other thing I would say, you know, another truth you, you might, that might come to mind is what Jesus said about the moat and the beam. You know, and whenever somebody, we're in conflict with someone, our, you know, the favorite indoor sport is blaming the other person. You've got to find out what the other person did wrong. Or at least, you know, if I'm going to admit wrong, they got to admit wrong too, because we got to, we got to, you know, we got to settle all this out. And the question is not what's right, but who's right in the thing. And it just locks us up into, into conflict that we can't resolve. You know what Jesus said? He said? Don't go around trying to get this little tiny splinter out of somebody else's eye. Get the beam out of your own eye. Bit of humor there. Hope you appreciate that. Someone trying to peer into someone else's eye and get a, get a splinter out, and he's got this two before sticking out of his, and he's bashing the person on the head with it, you know, while he's trying to get... That's the point that Jesus is making. Don't focus on the other person's problem, which is what we always do in our relationships. If he or she would just get it right, then I could, I could do what's right. Oh, Jesus, no, 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 no. You focus on yourself, see? You do what's right. Don't worry about that. Try to change people put so much stress on relationships. You can't change people. Only God can change people. So don't try to change your partner. Ask God to change you. That's what he's saying. Now, that's a truth. I'm just giving you illustrations of truth that will come to mind at a time of conflict. 
Now, this, this presupposes that you're reading the Word. Hope you are. Summertime's a uh, lazy time. We all get undisciplined. Uh, we tend to lay back and do very little, but you know, we need to stay in the Word, keep focusing on the truth, learning, growing, so we can apply it when, when the heat's on. Now, there's a final, final word here, uh, verse 6. Uh, pardon me, verse 9. <coughs> Whatever you have learned or received or heard, that is, uh, learned from Paul's teachings or his writings, or seen in me, that is, his, what they've learned from his conduct, put it into practice. And the God who is characterized by peace will be with you. In other words, there's something about obedience that gives us a special sense of the presence of God. But Jesus said in John 14, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will love him and manifest ourselves to him. Now, it's not that God does not love you when you disobey, but when you obey, there's a special sense of blessing, a special sense in which we, uh, we know the presence of God. We feel his love and his acceptance of us. And Paul says, uh, not only should you think about the truth, think about such things, but put them into practice. Actually, verses 8 and 9 are connected. There's an and there. It doesn't show up in the translation. So he's saying, think about such things and put them into practice. So as you think about the truth and something comes to mind that you need to do, do it. You may need to ask forgiveness. Maybe the other person wronged you, but you reacted in the wrong way. And the tendency is to go back and want to get the other person to admit that they're wrong first, and then you'll apologize. But what God wants you to do is just go back and apologize. Ask for their forgiveness. Remembering the, the extent to which we have been forgiven. See? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While the person you're in conflict with is still sinning, we, we can forgive. We can love. See? We can ask for forgiveness. We can forgive them. And we can ask them to, to forgive us. Or maybe we need to, to talk over our feelings. We need to tell them how we feel about what they did and how it hurt us. There needs to be some loving confrontation. Or maybe we just need to keep our mouth shut and learn from the situation. If nothing else, God can te teach us humility. Maybe we don't need to, to be forgiven or understood. And that's what, you know, that bothers me more than anything else, is not being understood. You know what? Even though I'm wrong, I want the other person to understand why I'm wrong. And when they don't understand, it just bugs the tar out of me. But that's all right. Maybe, maybe we have to be misunderstood just to learn humility. Because what that does is make you hang on to God for all your worth. I love the story in the Old Testament of David and Shimei. It's not a very well-known story, but some of you are familiar with it. David was driven out of the city and into exile, and making his way across the Jordan River. Uh, and uh, this uh, nasty little little man, Shimei, came out and started throwing rocks at him. He was uh, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, and he was angry and resentful at David because David had been appointed king rather than one of Saul's descendants. And he was throwing rocks and sand and gravel at David and calling him names and swearing at him. And Joab, who is David's personal bodyguard, said, shall I go up and take off his head? And David said, no, no, perhaps the Lord has sent him. Perhaps the Lord has sent him. God allowed this scurrilous little guy to pick on David, perhaps. 
so David would learn whatever lessons he needed to learn through that through that experience. Now I, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to press this thing all out of shape. But I, I really have a feeling that in summary here we have a number of things that can help us deal with conflict. And when Paul called upon Yodi and Syntyche to agree with each other, and when he called for someone to help them, this is the kind of help that really helps teach people to center on Christ when they're under attack rather than worrying about the approval of the other person. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised. Perfect peace and rest. So when we center on him that we feel secure. And secondly, practice his presence. Know that he's here defending us so we don't we can forbear. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to protect ourselves. And third, instead of getting anxious and uptight and worried Ask for help. Just ask him. Call him Father and ask him for something. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind. And then fourth, remind yourself of the truth. Our tendency is to go back and run the old tapes. Oh, yes, the way that's always the way he is, and he'll always be that way to the end of our life. And, and you know, he's, he's a miserable human being, and I'll have to live with No, 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 no. See, turn those tapes off. And go back and remind yourself of what's true in that situation, what God says is true. And then finally, whatever God wants you to do, do it. Whatever it costs, if it's ask forgiveness, if it's to forgive, whatever it is, just do it. And the God who's characterized by peace will be with you. The situation may remain, your house may still be in turmoil, but there will be a sense of inner peace that comes from knowing the peace of God and the God of peace. Now, uh, we're not going to do it perfectly. I mean, who are we kidding? Uh, some of us are going to walk out of here and get into a big argument with our wives this afternoon or husbands or whatever. That's all right. We're accepting. God loves us anyway. We're not perfect. And sometimes we will remember to do all of this and our, our difficult person, whoever it may be, won't respond the right way. And we would like it if we, you know, we do it right, and they say, oh, my goodness, you're right. I'm wrong. I should have seen that. I apologize for all the grief I've given you for the last 20 years or whatever. It's not going to happen. We're members of the human race. Let's get real. I mean, we're going to fail, and, and the people that we're in conflict with are, are going to fail, but that's all right. We're, we're accepted. There's grace greater than our sin. I just keep going back to that in Philippians because Paul does over and over again. There's grace that's greater than our sin. We're accepted in the beloved one. Harry Einside used to tell uh, uh, about the practice of sheep herders when a, uh, a mother sheep would lose, lose her lamb. They would skin the little lamb and would take that skin and they would place it on the back of a motherless lamb. Because sometimes you'd have uh, lambless mothers and sometimes you'd have motherless lambs. And they would take these little orphan lambs that had no mothers, that had been rejected by their mothers. And they would put the sheep, the skin of the dead sheep over them and lead them to the, to the, the lamb who had lost her lamb or the, the mother sheep, who, the ewe who had lost her lamb. And she would smell that skin and she would accept that little lamb and Dr. Ironside used to say, that's what it means to be accepted in the Beloved One. Uh, our Lord laid down his life. And that sacrifice is applied to us 
and now we're accepted in the Beloved One. The failures of the past, the failures of the future are paid for. And as we sit around this table this morning, that's what we want to remember. It's that cross that makes it possible for us to know that God accepts us just as we are. He looks for progress, and he provides strength to grow, but he accepts us just as we are. Now, as the men come uh, to serve the bread and and the cup uh, this morning, would you take just a few minutes to think through what we've been talking about this morning? There are areas of sin you need to confess and deal with. Will you do so? John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you able to forgive the person sitting next to you, the person you've been resentful against and angry with this morning? Can you just forgive them and forget? And uh, let God deal with them. Let God change them. And let God change you. Can you just open up your heart as God has opened up his heart to you? Let's do that as the men come forward to service.